0: Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counter-formational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Justin. If you're new, it's good to have you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are new, uh, you, uh, you have good timing because last week we talked about money. So dodged a bullet there. Nice work. Uh, for all of you new folks, uh, we are launching a new series, which is another reason why you've got good timing. If you're new, uh, this new series, Making Sense of the Nonsense, we're going to get after some of the most kind of uh, hot topics of the day. And and I want to say why we're doing it and why we're not doing it. The first, the reason why we're not... Or the. What's not the reason we're doing it is uh, that we want to be controversial and interesting and push the limits. And anyone who's like, I like to push the limits, it's just not a cool person. And so um, that's not what we're doing here. It's not like we're trying to be edgy. Here's what we are trying to do, uh, equip you and educate you and give you what you need to be Christian in the world, okay? So if you're here and you're a Christian, you are engaging with all of these topics on a regular basis all the time, whether you like it or not, right? These are the things that everyone around you is talking about uh, through, through individual people, through media, through entertainment, all of it. We're all talking about these things, Okay. And it is important for us as Christians to understand, all right, where are we at on these things? Not only where are we at, but why? Why do we believe what we believe about these things? Because one of the things that I think is like a fear or insecurity in a lot of Christians is, we believe a lot of things that are different than what the rest of the world believes, and we're, I think we're fearful that we don't have really good reason why we believe those things. And we're just like, well, I mean, the Bible says it, and it's pretty old, so it must be right, you know? And that there's not a logic, like an internal logic to these things. And so one of the big reasons why we want to do this series is to demonstrate the internal logic, the, the fact that the way we think about these issues actually makes sense. It's a coherent worldview. Okay? And I think uh, if you were here and you're not a Christian, very excited you're here, very glad you'd be willing to uh, come to church on a Sunday morning. But what I want you to take from a series like this, if you would hang with us, or at least a sermon like this, if you'll hang with me through the whole thing, uh, is that there, I want you to see why we believe what we believe right? And to hear it clearly from us, because I, I, you know, we all interact in a lot of non-Christian spaces. The thing that I, that just blows my mind anytime I'm around non-Christians talking about Christianity is they have no, like they usually say the opposite of what Christianity is, which is something like, if you're a good person, then God will love you. That is literally the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you're not a good person and God loves you anyway, Like, that's the message, right? So anytime you watch The Simpsons or Family Guy or whatever, it's always like, well, you got to be, you know, it's it's, uh, Flanders, you know, going, well, I'm a good person. And like, that's not it. Like, that's literally what Jesus' enemies talked about. And he's like, no, you guys missed the whole thing, okay? So I want us to understand what we believe. And I want us to understand why we believe what we believe. And in the process, maybe humbly, gently unpacking some of the incoherence and illogic of the worldview that uh, we're surrounded by. Sound like a good deal? Doesn't matter, that's what we're doing. Okay, here's where we're starting, okay? We're starting with the biggest picture of all, right? Before we get into these individual issues, um, we wanna see what the big idea is. And, and, and in, in a philosophical language, that I, that, that's called a worldview. Okay, so if you've never heard of a worldview, maybe you're more familiar with the original. Immanuel Kant kind of coined the phrase. He called it Weltanschauung, okay? Maybe you're more familiar with that. Uh, that's the German. And, uh, and, and it's the, the basic idea is that it is the frame that you put around the world that helps you understand what is inside the world. Okay? It is the lens through which you look at the world that helps you understand each individual piece. Or, for a more uh, scholarly definition, from James W. Sire's book, Naming the Elephant, it says, a worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions, assumptions that may be true, partially true, or entirely false which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality. And that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Okay? So that's the complicated definition. The simple way to think about it is, it's the way we know what we know. Okay? It's the way, so a, a worldview accomplishes two basic things. One is it helps us understand good and evil. Right? So every one of us has to make decisions about good and evil, and a worldview is a frame through which we make those decisions. But it's more than that. It's not just the binary of good and evil. It's also value hierarchy. So there are a lot of things in our lives that we would go, hey, it's not good an issue of good or evil. It's an issue of what's most important. Right? Should I go spend time with my family or work more? Both of those two things are very good things. Neither of them are evil, depending on your job. If you're in marketing, maybe evil. But otherwise, it is a, it is a question of value. Okay? Here's where this becomes, uh, uh, here's an example of this, of, of how this works. Abortion. Okay? Abortion is a nice, easy illustration to use. Uh, uh, so abortion, for people who are pro-life, falls into the binary of good and evil. Right, for those who are pro-life, see it as a really clear-cut good and evil issue. Okay? For those who are pro-choice, normally it is framed as an issue of values, right? Very few, though some and more and more, but very few would say that abortion is good. Right? That they would be pro-abortion. Some people, but very few, okay? But what they say is it's not as valuable, the the life of an unborn child is not as valuable as the freedom for a woman to choose what to do with her body, okay? So it's not as as much a a binary good and evil thing as much as it is a value thing. We go, this freedom is more important or more valuable to us, so we're going to choose that over this. Even though we wouldn't say this is a good thing, we would just say this is a better thing, and so we're going to value it that way, okay? That all comes through the lens of a worldview. So each of us has to make these decisions uh, about what is good and what is evil, what is valuable and what is not valuable, or what that hierarchy of value is. And the question that I would pose to all of us, whether you're here and you're a Christian or not a Christian, is how do you make that decision? How do you make that decision? So an issue is presented to you, maybe it's a new idea or it's a choice you have to make or whatever... And you have to decide. Okay, is this good or evil? There's a good box and an evil box. Which box do you put it in? You have to make that decision. The question of worldview is the question of how do you make that decision. What what are the what are the things that you are committed to as? Uh, as Cyrus said, those presuppositions, those, those commitments we have before anything, we go, okay, here's what is the most important thing, here's what I value more than anything else, and so that's how, that's the lens through which I make these decisions, okay? And we're going to talk about a lot of the things that, that are the hardest things for us to make those decisions about, that more and more and more, and I, you know, I'm 43 years old, in my lifetime, culture and church have moved further away on more issues as time has gone on. Which means it just creates more and more tension for us to take things like sexuality and gender and race and equality and evil and all these things and go, okay, how do we understand them and most importantly, why? Why did we choose to put it in the good box and not the evil box? Why did we choose to put it at the top of the value hierarchy, not at the bottom? So everyone has a worldview, whether you, it's a conscious one or a subconscious one, whether you know it or have a name for it or not, everyone has a worldview. Most of us, most non-Christians, don't think too hard about what that worldview is because it doesn't maybe have a name for it. Christians have at least a name for it, though I think we could all think a lot harder about the implications of it. Okay. So without a conscious worldview, you don't have an anchor right? You don't have a thing that, because every one of these issues that's presented to us comes with all, all kinds of different angles, right? So an issue like sexuality or gender is a really easy example uh, of an issue that we would take and go, okay, it's, it's a question of value, it's a question of ethics, but it's not just existing in a vacuum, it also comes with people attached to it. And most people that I've seen who have shifted their their position or their ideas around sexuality or gender do so because they go, well, it's not about the issue, it's about this person. And without an anchor for us to go, hey, this is hard, but i got to say no on this one because there's a person in front of me who's going to be mad at me or sad about my decision or call me a name or think of me poorly, and I don't want that. And if we don't have a clear anchor by which we live, and, and to use in a situation like that to go, okay, yeah, I, I love this person, but I think this is a no for me. And and it's more important on the value hierarchy, it's more important for me to be faithful than it is to be, you know, liked by this person. Okay, and that's what a worldview provides. So I think part of the reason why we see Uh, culture change happening so rapidly and so radically is because many in our culture don't have the anchor that would allow them to say no to something so it's just yes 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 okay so it's really important for us to be able to have that anchor to have a, a way in which we would have these discussions and and deal with these issues Okay, so what I want to do is I want to look at two very common worldviews in our city and then juxtapose them a little bit with uh, a Christian worldview. And we're going to do all of this in the next 31 minutes. Here we go. Secular materialist worldview. Okay, a secular materialist is a fancy way of saying an atheist, right? Somebody who, so the secular part of it is that there is no divine being. There's, there's no entity beyond us, right, that, that, that governs the universe in any way. And then materialist is not like, oh, they like the Kardashians. It's that all they trust is what they can touch or taste or hear or see, right? Like it, it's materialist. It's only things that, that you can kind of test through the scientific method. That's all that matters. So secular, no divine. Materialist meaning only no transcendence. Right? Nothing transcendent in the world. Okay? So that is a very commonly stated worldview that we go, well, you know, we all probably know people who are atheists who go, nope, there's no God and there's nothing transcendent in no the spiritual realm. We'll get to the people that are like atheists but still spiritual, which is a fun uh, illogic. Uh, but the, the idea of the secular materialist world, here's 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 the issue with this. If everyone is just an evolved animal, which is essentially what they would say, who got, through, got here through a long process of natural selection and survival of the fittest, Then there is no, and there is no like, ordering power in the universe, then actually very little about our society makes sense. Like very little about the way we actually interact with each other makes sense or flows from a purely secular materialist worldview. And if you don't believe me, um, Christopher Hitchens, famous, famous uh, uh, atheist, says this about human rights. He goes, how do I know there is such a thing as human rights? I don't. I don't know that there are such things. Our grounding for human rights is about as tenuous as our position as a primate species on a rather dodgy planet. So Hitchens argued a lot that like there's no atheistic argument for human rights at all. We believe in good and evil. Most every person would say they believe in good and evil, right and wrong, and if they say they don't, punch them in the face and then see if they get mad. Right? But Richard Dawkins, another famous atheist, sees a universe that, quote, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Right? Which makes sense. That's, that is coherent. That is consistent with the secular materialist worldview. Human rights, civil rights, makes no sense. Arguments against oppression, bigotry, inequality, even slavery make no sense. If we got here because strong things eat weak things, then why would we ever protect weak things? If anything, we should be eating them. That's the logic of the secular materialist worldview, like if you actually followed it coherently, okay? So it, it, it makes no sense for us to protect people who are, 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 are uh, oppressed, people who are disadvantaged. There's no reason to if there is no God and nothing transcendent. Why would you? You are literally retarding our progress, our evolution as a species by keeping those genetics in, in the gene pool. We should be eliminating them. Right? The only law... in a a secular materialist worldview, should be cause and effect. That's it. In other words, I I won't eat you because there's strong people who could eat me, and I'd rather a law say they can't eat me. So that's the trade-off. I'll agree to a law that says I won't eat you because I don't want that guy to eat me. That's it. Cause and effect. Anything, any ideals, any ideas about human rights or human dignity are ridiculous. If we are consistent in this worldview. But here's the thing no one actually believes that all the way down. They don't. And again, you impress them. And I have read the literature. A lot of atheists try to make arguments for some sort of ethical code, but it breaks down so very quickly. And it is nothing more than uh, what's called maybe social contract theory, which is essentially what I just said about cause and effect writ large for a, a whole society. That says we don't want to do these things to each other, so we're just going to agree to those things. But they're not inherent rights. They can be taken away the moment people change their minds about what they want to agree to. There's, there's no inherent dignity. Okay, so nobody actually believes this in practicality or they're probably in prison. James K.A. Smith, one of my favorite theologians, uh, speaks to this, says, Your deepest desire, he observes, is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which, as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means that the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos, which is Greek for end or purpose, that I'm not even aware of, and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. His broader point in in this book, You Are What You Love, is to say, you you know what you want, you know what you love, you know what you actually value when you look at your behavior. Because what you actually do reveals what you actually believe, and what you actually love, and what you actually want. And so when we look at folks who would say, I I believe in essentially a secular materialist worldview, but their lives reflect a far more principled conviction about what is good and what is evil, and the fact that there is good and that there is evil and that there is human dignity and human rights, speaks to a conviction that maybe is at odds with their head. Okay, so some years ago, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith led a team, he's out of Notre Dame, uh, led a team that did this, this uh, nationwide, beyond nations, it looked at basically what are, what are the spiritual beliefs of young people in the West? Okay, so uh, the North America and Western Europe. What are the spiritual beliefs of young people in the West? And they uh, did, a, it was a long, long study. They culled it all down to five things that they described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And we'll get into the five kind of principles of that. But this is basically what I think we see far more here in L.A. at a practical level. Okay, So someone might say they're an atheist, but in fact their life reveals that they are far more of a moralistic therapeutic deist. Though the deism is pretty squishy in L.A. So here are the five things. We'll talk about them really briefly. One. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's the deist part. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic part. And God does not need to be involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. So this is mostly incoherent in the sense that like, it doesn't follow from one. There's no guiding principles behind this. This is just kind of a, a, a buffet of ideas that are easy to grab onto, easy to believe, and, and make it really easy to kind of navigate the world, right? So starting at the beginning. There is a God exists. he created an order in the world, and he watches over human life on earth. That makes me feel better, that there, that, that there was some purpose behind the world, but then God kind of took a step back and was like, good luck, you know, like, but there is some order to the world, and that's how, I mean, you read scientists uh, that, that talk all the time about, and, and secular scientists talk all the time about, we've, we know a lot, but the fundamental question we don't know is why it all makes sense, like why math works. Why physics works. Like, the, the greatest scientists of our time don't have an answer for why math works. It speaks to some larger thing, which uh, what we'll call MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, kind of explains by going, there is a God, does exist, but he's pretty hands-off. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So, good, undefined, nice, actually, the Bible doesn't say you got to be nice, thankfully, and, uh, and fair, though the Bible does say fair, but no definition of what, what that might mean uh, and, and what, the, what accountability might look like around fairness. And this is the one that, that I think we see all around us, the central goal of life, which is a big statement. The central goal of life is to be happy, and more importantly, to feel good about oneself. This is why we have such a hard time saying no to new ideas and people. Because if the central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself, then who am I to tell you that you shouldn't do a thing that you think will make you happy and feel good about yourself? So that becomes our, 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 our through line, our, our governing idea, that we go, well, he thinks it's gonna make him happy and make, and make him feel good about himself, so yeah, go for it. Like, there, there's no principle higher than happiness and feeling good, therefore any idea about right and wrong is subservient to will it make me happy and feel good about myself? And I think that's where we get ourselves here. God doesn't need to be involved except for we need him to solve a problem, right? And good people go to heaven when they die, but let's not define what good is. Because like, how do you define that? You'd have to have rules, and then you'd have to say some people are not good, and I don't want to be that person, and so let's just not define it. So it's all very squishy, right? And it allows for us to kind of, you know, navigate the world together without ever having to be put out or to put anyone else out. But the question that remains, and the question I want to challenge all of us with, whether you're here and you're a Christian, whether you're here you're not a Christian, whether you're here and you hear me read that, uh, uh, the, the, uh, what's the, what did I just say? Moralistic therapeutic deism, and you're like, that sounds pretty good. I kind of like that. Where do I read more about that? That sounds like how I want to govern my life. I, all I want to challenge each and every one of us with, as we get done with the introduction, is, uh, is why. Is to ask yourself why. Why is that right? How do you know what you know? Why do you believe what you believe? So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I think it is wildly important for you to consider what your worldview is. Do you have any kind of consistent guiding principles that would allow you or empower you or convict you even to say no to something in the face of contradiction? Is there anything that you would stand up for at risk of losing relationship, losing job, losing money, losing face. And if there is, why? Why that thing? So I I think it's always important for us to be conscious about the things we believe and more importantly, why we believe it. But for those of you who are here and you are Christians, we have to ask ourselves, what is a Christian worldview and, and am I consciously holding myself to it? Okay? Because in this, in this cultural moment, there are two really important reasons why we need to know and do this thing. One is, I think the Christian worldview is increasingly at tension with the worldview of, the, of what's around us. And so it is going to become more and more and more and more difficult for us to navigate the world with a faithfully Christian worldview. And so we need to be rooted and really clear about not only what those things are, but why and why they are actually consistent and logical. And then two, I think because of this gap that's increasing between the church and the world, there are more eyeballs on us and more accountability for us to walk out faithfully what we say we believe. Okay? So, for all of this, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Let's get into the sermon. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 What I want to do in these eight verses or so is outline, there's a lot of ways we could do this, but I'd like to do it out of one passage. Um, I want to outline what what a Christian worldview is and some of those kind of first order convictions that we would build a worldview on. So we're not going to get into all the details, that's for the rest of this series. Today we just want to lay that foundation of how we make the decisions we're going to make. Okay, so Colossians chapter 1 starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now the he in this whole passage is Jesus, okay? Jesus is at the beginning. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We're gonna talk today in Catechism about Trinity, and so we're gonna use these words interchangeably, Jesus and God, if you're not a Christian, Come to catechism, you'll understand why we can use those terms interchangeably. But this whole thing for Christians starts with God. And that may seem obvious, but in in practicality, it is not obvious, right? Because what we see around us, and I I think uh, moralistic therapeutic deism would say it starts with me even though the first principle was God, if the central goal of life is for me to be happy and to feel good about myself, that locates me in the center of the story. Because the central goal of life is only happening if I feel happy and fulfilled and feel good about myself, which therefore means God is not first, I am first. Okay, And God's goodness is understood insofar as I am happy and feel good about myself. If God has created a life scenario where I am not happy and feel good about myself, that's on God because he's not fulfilling my central purpose. A Christian worldview begins with God. God is preeminent. God is first. God has chosen to express himself to us, to make us make us know him, to make himself known to us. I mean, that's the there's, a, there's kind of a faux humility of agnosticism that would say, well, I just am not so arrogant as to say that I know who God is. Well, wrapped up in that statement is a fairly clear statement about the kind of God you believe in that has chosen not to clearly reveal himself. That's a thing about God that an agnostic says that you believe that God hasn't and wouldn't and will not, theoretically, Reveal himself clearly to us. Well, that's a belief statement about who God is. Christians say it begins with God and a God who has not only revealed his character, but has actually initiated relationship with us. Okay, the key part of this is if God is first, then God gets to call balls and strikes. God's the boss. Okay? So when, when we're in these moments and, and the world's coming at us and questions and we got to make decisions about good and evil and level of value and all that stuff, the first move isn't, well, what will make me happy and make me feel good about myself? The first question is, what does God say? The Christian story begins with God. God's at the center. And we'll see what that means here in a moment. Verse 16. It says, four... By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is critical. By him, through him, and for him. So God designed the universe. So the fact that all things were created by him, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, uh, all of the thrones and principalities, ideas, power, all of it, was designed by God, which means two things. One, God is the source, and God is the designer. It's very, uh, it's very hip to call yourself a creator these days. It is also very arrogant. Okay. Uh, at best, we are, we are combiners, right? God created all of the raw material of this world. If you go all the way back to the very beginning, God created all things, gave it to Adam and Eve, and they went, whoa. Look, look at all these things. If we put uh, dirt and water together, it makes mud. They didn't create mud. They combined two things that God gave them to make a third thing. This is all we have the capacity to do, is to combine the things that God has created into new things. We are not creators. We are combiners. Some of you need to change your Instagram bio. But that is, that is what we are at best combiners of things that God gave us. So God is the source. He is also the designer, which means he made a thing for a purpose to be used in a certain way. So everything we design, everything humans design, is designed with something in mind, a way in which it's used. Some of you might be UX designers or have worked with UX designers. When a UX that's user experience uh, the, when a UX designer creates a thing, they're saying, here, here is how this app is supposed to be used. Or here is how this website is supposed to be used. And so you're supposed to start here, and then this is an option, this is an option, there's this tree of decisions that you make, but this is how you're supposed to navigate. When you navigate a website or an app in a way the UX designer didn't design, that's called hacking, right? Okay, so any designer. So you have a car. It's designed for you to use the handle to open the door to sit in. That's the design. You can try to do it a different way, but it's going to go against the, the the vision of the designer, and therefore not going to uh, bear out the end that you want. Right. So you could open a. You could go through the window uh, into your car. You could sit backwards with your back against the steering wheel and try to steer like this. You could do all of those things you would die uh, if you did most of them, right? It's not the end for which it was made. It was designed to be in such a way. So same is true for the whole world. Bible says God created all things through him. So he is the source. He gets the credit. And he is the designer. So then we go, okay, well, how do I, I was given a body. How do I use the body? Well, designer, tell me what my body was designed for. Was it designed for burritos? No. Well, too bad. I mean, there. I can't be perfect. But God designed our bodies to be to function in a certain way, right? To to function uh, this way and not that way. God designed all of the world to 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 be to function in certain ways. And so again, when we have these questions coming to us, we go, okay, God's the source, so I am not preeminent. I am not the authority. God made it, not me. And he designed it so he's gonna know best how to use it and what it was made for. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. He's not all things were created by him, but also all things were created for him, which means that he gets the glory for them, and the purpose for which, the outcome for which they were, desi- they were made for, is his purpose. Okay, so you, again, you, you jump into a nice car, and you use it the right way, it's an incredible experience. It's a really fun time. You use it in ways it's not designed for, and, uh, and there's danger involved, right? But when you do it, you go, okay, so, I don't know if any of you have ever drive, driven a Tesla, they're incredible. I mean, it's nice I've driven in nice cars and they are a nicer version of a car and it's very cool. Driving a Tesla is a totally different driving experience. And there's the first time I hit the accelerator and they accelerate so fast and it's so quiet, it's amazing. I just went, "Elon!" I mean, it was just came out of me, right? Just giving glory to the designer because that design was so incredible. It's just an amazing experience makes me sick, I can't, it gives me motion sickness, but that first acceleration was crazy. Then I puked, and I was like, whatever. So, when we, when we acknowledge the, the source, use something by its design, it gives glory to the creator, and we get the outcome that the designer created it for. That's what this means. All things were created by him and for him. Verse 17 and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. God holds, uh, God. Uh, not only does everything start with God, God created all things, but God holds all things together, which means that we are dependent upon him for all things. Our very breath each and every breath is a gift given to us by God. If God decided to turn his back on creation, the very molecules would fall apart. Everything would devolve into a series of electrons and neutrons and protons. It would all fall apart. Gravity and and electromagnetism that holds our world together would cease to exist if God just walked away from us. We are entirely and in every way dependent upon him, which I think at a functional level might be the most challenging part of a Christian worldview because there is nothing that us Angelinos love more than our independence and the idea that we are free to do what we want to do and we don't need nobody. We can handle ourselves. We can live our lives on our own. We don't need anybody. The reality is we are entirely dependent on him we are not independent beings number four that god reconciles all things verse 19 for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So, God reconciles all things. That's good news. It means a couple things that we have to admit to, which is one, we are in need of reconciliation. We are in need of reconciliation. Paul says words in here that moralistic therapeutic deism would hate, like alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The Christian worldview has the, great, the most realistic view of human nature of any worldview that there is. But it does require deep humility from us. It requires a humility that moralistic therapeutic deism does not require. The 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 implication of MTD is, you're great, and I want you to be happy and feel good about yourself, because you should feel good about yourself. There was nothing in MTD, that description, that talked about sin or lack or need at all. The Christian worldview requires a humility of us, because we don't want this to be true. It's why we fall prey to advertising that tells us we're great, and all we need is that one product. That were otherwise awesome. If we just had Doritos, everything would be great, which is not far from true, I guess. But that—that is—that is the lie that we want to believe. Okay. So it doesn't only mean that we need to be reconciled, but it also means that we can be reconciled, and we have been reconciled by the blood of the cross. But that was the cost. Of our reconciliation. Now, here is what all worldviews attempt to do, and I would say more clearly, uh, the worldviews of you know official kind of world religions, which we haven't talked about at all, and we won't today, but will in the future, I hope. Um, but the 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 official kind of world religions uh, and, and and most of our religions that outside of obviously secular materialism um, try to accomplish the the solution to the God man gap. Okay? So almost every conscious worldview would say, yes, there is a gap between God and man right? And some of those worldviews try to lower and kind of humanize God in some way. So, I mean, this is maybe a dated example, but ancient Greek literature uh, would say, you know, the gods of ancient Greece or ancient Rome were notoriously capricious and angry and petty, and they would fight each other and do things to the world. So this was them lowering the gods to become just basically powerful but pretty petty humans to to close that gap, right? Others, and what I think we see more in L.A., is to say that if, if we're going to talk about a God at all, it's going to be kind of a deistic kind of thing. But we're going to raise up the view of humans and go, really, humans are basically good. We're great people. We just need a little more education, a little more time, a little more money, a little more opportunity, a little more equity. Uh, that, that's all we got to do. We just, it's the system. That, that we just. People are great, okay, is the, is the short version. Christianity, more than any other faith or philosophy, says God is as good and holy and blameless as any, and humans are as bad as can be. And the way that Christianity closes the God-man gap is that God chose of his own volition, because of his goodness, because of his love, to come and bridge that gap and die on the cross for us. That's the good news of the gospel. So again, this is what Family Guy and The Simpsons and every comedian I meet gets absolutely wrong. They go, well, Christianity is saying you got to get up to God, you got to be good, and then God will approve of you once you hit a certain threshold. No, it never has been that at all. From the very beginning, it's God's the best, we're the worst, God's even more the best because he came to us. That's Christianity. Okay. So Paul says, and this is how we have, again, going back to worldview, us going, God is first, God created, God designed, God defines the purpose, and when there is a gap, because there will be an inevitable gap, there will be a moment where something comes down that God says is evil and we say is good, or we go, yeah, I know it's evil, but I still want to do it, right? That will happen. It is happening in this room right now, That's what's happening. And God goes, I get it. The solution, and again, back to worldview, the solution is not do better, try harder, blame someone else, blame the system, blame people in power. It's God took responsibility for his creation even though we didn't deserve it. That's how we see the world. That's how Christians see the world, through a fundamentally redemptive lens. Lastly, God restores all things. Verse 22. It says, uh, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Just... just Does Christianity believe that once someone becomes a Christian, they immediately become practically holy and blameless in the sense that they never sin, never make mistakes, ever again. So God saves us and we are immediately holy and blameless. Class? No. So sin is kind of the whole point of, in many ways, the the primary uh, conflict in the gospel story. This is what makes, again, makes no sense to me about the way either culture portrays Christianity or the way Christians kill other Christians when they sin. As if that's not baked into the premise of the gospel. As if we shouldn't expect one another to sin against each other. That's why Jesus had to die. So This is what I don't get when you get somebody who sins and they're repentant. And we go, well, it's great to be repentant, but you're out now i got to imagine Jesus in heaven going, I don't know what I died for, guys, if you keep eliminating people because they sinned. Because I knew they were going to sin. I know you're sinning. That's what grace is all about. So again, talk about worldview, how we deal with people and interact with people is you are made in the image of God, deeply broken by sin, in need of grace, given that grace by God, and hopefully given that grace by me. It's how we see people. So that has that a million little implications into like what we call good and evil and why and how people take on certain of those decisions as identities about who they are That's just fundamentally different than the way we think about it, which makes it really hard to have discussion. We'll talk about that more in, in future weeks. So if we are not inherently Uh, or or making good decisions all the time, holy and blameless by action, and yet Paul says that the cross makes us holy and blameless, that means that we are given that holiness by grace. It is bestowed upon us. It is imputed to us, is the good biblical word. God's grace, Jesus' holiness is imputed, is handed to us and made our own by grace. Lastly, he says you are holy holy and blameless above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Notice that Paul points out the necessity of holding fast to the faith. In a moment where, that, that is becoming, we're increasing grip strength to be able to hold fast because of the winds of change and the, the gravity of this world pulling us away from the gospel. Paul says, hold fast. So critical for us to Remember. The culture moves and shifts and can't make up its mind from one day to the next about what matters and what doesn't matter. You can say something, and half of Twitter's against you, and half of Twitter's for you. Say something else, and they flip flop. It, it's, it's, it's the worst. Everything's the worst right now. So we have to hold fast to the gospel. He promises life to those who believe and those who hold fast to the gospel. Theologian Langdon Gilkey said this, and we'll wrap up here. Whether he wishes it or not, man as a free creature must pattern his life according to some chosen ultimate end, must center his life on some chosen ultimate loyalty, and must commit his security to some trusted power. Man or woman inevitably roots his life in something ultimate. For the Christian, that starts with God. God is preeminent, known to us through Jesus, his son, that he created all things. All things were created by him and for him. So he is the source, the designer, the recipient of the glory, and the definer of purpose. He also holds all things together, so we are eternally and constantly dependent upon him that he reconciles all things to himself by his death, closes that gap, not because we're good or he's bad, but because he is so good that he closes that gap. And he will one day restore all things back to his intention in creation. That's the way in which we see our world, designed by God for good, deeply broken, redeemed by him, and with the hope of restoration. And it's through that lens that we will now engage each of these very difficult and sensitive topics over the next 12 weeks to try to be consistent about how we see these things in light of what the gospel tells us about them. Let's pray. Jesus, we are dependent, in desperate need of you at all times. You hold us together. Our very atoms are held together by you. Everything about our lives is a gift from you, designed for a purpose. Lord, may we first and foremost submit to the truth that you are God and we are not. That you define reality because you created reality. That you define what is good and evil because you, created the ideas of good and evil lord give us by your grace the humility to submit to that vision to submit to the design submit to the purpose submit to you in all things.